This morning we read from Revelation 14, 1-7. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with Him 144,000, having His name and the name of His Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on earth. And to every nation and tribe and tongue and people, he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of waters. Good morning and welcome. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Uh, We're continuing in our series summer series on the book of Revelation, and I'm excited to walk through four chapters with you today. It'll be okay, I promise. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, I'm Marianne Porter, and for two years, Yvette Westendorf and I have shared the role of uh, women's pastor here at Cole. Now, uh, you should also know that for the past 18 years, I've led women's Bible studies, and I usually do this around my kitchen table. So uh, I needed a bigger table, I think, or something. I don't, and I'm worried I didn't bring enough refreshments. Um, but I'm impartial to an inductive approach to uh, scripture study. I like to interpret scripture with scripture. Now, a few years ago, my Bible study gals and I went through uh, two semesters in the book of Daniel, and then we followed that with four semesters in the book of Revelation. And when we first undertook the book of Revelation, the study of it, I expect to rely heavily on other books of the Bible to help me understand. But what I discovered was actually the reverse. The book of Revelation actually helped me, helps me understand the rest of the Bible. You and I have an amazing, powerful God, and he's restoring his creation to the rightful state and with Jesus as its righteous king. Permit me to pray for us, and then we will explore this next section of Revelation. Father, near the beginning of this book, you have said, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. I pray, Father, that by your Spirit, you will reveal to us your truth and stir within us its application to our lives. May your word do its work. May we see you more clearly, love and trust you more deeply, 
And then, Father, may we be more than mere hearers of your word. May we be steadfast doers of it as well. And it's in your son's precious name that I ask these things. Amen. So when Josh Kramer introduced the uh, Revelation series a few Sundays ago, he said it was very hard to interpret, and not everyone who teaches will agree on everything. And I am one of those people. (laughs) So what I share with you today will be a little different from the direction we've taken the last couple of weeks. Now, I don't want to cause confusion about it, but as I prayed and studied and reviewed um, the study from years ago, I concluded that I can only share with you today what the Spirit has shown me and, and the word that I get from God. There's a lot of Old Testament imagery in Revelation, and that influences my views greatly. Now, if you and I have ever discovered... Uh, the scriptures together, and sometimes even if we even just have a regular conversation, you know that I love me a large, clear diagram. And I have such a diagram for you today. And uh, you have the same thing in your bulletin. It's similar. There are a couple corrections I would make to the one in your bulletin. I tend to think of the seven bowls that's happening in the second half of the um, Daniel 70th week there. And then under the um, star, cross, and tomb, and ascension symbols there in the middle, uh, that should say Jesus' earthly ministry, not early ministry. So in this book, The Revelation of Jesus Christ, the Apostle John was instructed to write three things. He was asked to write what he sees. That's throughout the book. He's asked to write the things that are. That's the message to the seven churches. And Hernan de la Cruz taught us about those a few weeks ago. And then he's also asked to write the things that will take place after these things. And that's everything else. We've got the seals, the trumpets, the bowls. We've got thunder. Um, there's battles. There's signs in heaven. Now, Doug Gamble taught us about the um, opening of the seals by the lamb who's worthy. And Josh Kramer has spoken on the sounding of the seven trumpets. And before the bulls are unleashed, there's an interlude, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, this interlude begins the last verses of chapter 11 and continues through verse or chapter 15. These chapters, in these chapters, we have a kind of an overview of different parts of God's story, and it will provide us some new information. So the way I like to think of it is artwork that's made out of layers of acetate, drawings on acetate. And as you layer them up, you get um, the picture becomes more and more clear, more and more coherent. So just think about, I mean, it's going to be a lot of information, but let's just take it as layers. The other thing I would like to say before we begin is it's wise to keep in mind what Warren Wearsby said about prophecy. He said, whenever a prophet foretold the future, it was to awaken the people to their responsibilities in the present. Bible prophecy is an entertainment for the curious. It's encouragement for the serious. So please turn with me to chapter 12. And remember, there's a blessing for those who read, hear, and heed. So here John sees a couple of signs in heaven. In the first great sign, there's a woman clothed with the sun, and the moon is under her feet. She has a crown of 12 stars. She's pregnant and about to give birth. John then sees another sign in heaven, 
a great red dragon. Now he has seven heads with diadems and ten horns. Verse 4 says, The dragon's tail swept away a third of the stars in heaven and threw them to the earth. The dragon stood before the woman who is about to give birth in order that he might devour her child. The woman gives birth to a son who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. This child is caught up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness. It's to a place prepared by God. And there she's nourished for 1260 days. So let's unpack some of this. And again, just think of this as layers of pictures we're assembling. The child's identity is pretty straightforward. Uh, This is Jesus. And if you don't see that yet, Revelation 19 will make it clear. The woman's description, sun, moon, 12 stars, that contains elements mentioned in a dream recorded in Genesis 37. So you may recall Jacob, the patriarch of Israel. He had 12 sons. His favorite son is Joseph. Now, as a boy, Joseph had a dream. And in the dream, his father was the sun, his mother was the moon, and his looking at his brothers, he saw 11 stars. So it follows that Joseph himself was probably the 12th star. And recall that God changed Jacob's name to Israel, and the descendants of his 12 sons went on to become the 12 tribes of Israel. And of course, this happened before the time in Egypt. Okay. So the way I see it, the woman is the ancient nation of Israel, and Jesus Christ is the son she bears. Now, there are more facets to what she represents, but that's, this is a good place to start. Uh, we learn more in the next few verses about who the red dragon is. So starting in verse 7, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. The dragon is Satan, the serpent of old. This makes you think of Genesis 3. In the garden, uh, Satan's deception of Eve, as well as God's curse on Satan, that God would put enmity between Satan's seed and Eve's seed. In Genesis 3.15, God's speaking to the serpent, and he says, he, and he means Eve's seed, and notice that it's the pronoun singular. He's talking about Jesus. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. I'd like you to notice some things about the battle that takes place in heaven. So we have an angel, Michael, and he's one of just a couple angels named in the Bible. Uh, he's also named in Daniel, and also in, in that naming um, situation, he's in the role of a warrior. Note as well that it's not God the Father, nor is it Christ the Son, who wages war against the dragon. It's God's angels. They are stronger, and they forcibly remove the um, Satan and his followers from heaven. And I just highlight this to mention that it's important for us to understand this enemy of ours, and yet not ascribe to him more power than he's due. He may be the ruler of this world. It says that in 2 Corinthians 4. But as John reminds us in his first epistle, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Satan accuses believers before the throne. 
But it says in verse 11, the believers overcame because of the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. Let's pick it up at verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the two wings of the great evil were given to the woman so she could fly into the wilderness to her place, where she was nourished for a time, times, and half a time from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So here's a second mention of the woman and another mention of this period of time. So here, the period of time is um, a time, times, and half a time. Now a time is one year. A time, times, with an S, is two years. So a time, times, and half a time is three and a half years. So uh, stick with me with some math here just for a second. So uh, the Jewish calendar has 12 months, each with um, 29 to 30 days. Um, so three and a half years equals 42 months equals 1,260 days. Now, this particular duration of time has several mentions in Scripture, and we'll get to that in just a minute. So the woman, I see her as the nation of Israel or some remnant thereof, uh, flees to a place that God has prepared for her, and there she's nourished out of reach of the dragon for three and a half years. So the dragon goes off to make war with the rest of her children, and these people keep the commandments of God, and they hold to the testimony of Jesus. So they're believers. And here we've been given a layer of acetate for our picture. We have the rebellion of Satan. Uh, we have God's curse on Satan in the Garden of Eden. We have Christ's birth and ascension. We have the nation of Israel mentioned in a time of protection. We have Satan's permanent expulsion from heaven. And finally, we have Christians. With, and then Satan's making war um, with anyone and everyone. So now let's look at chapter 13. And everyone always finds this intriguing. Now, Bible translations diverge a bit. There's um, one letter difference in some manuscripts, and, and this is what it causes. The NIV and NASB begin with the dragon standing on the seashore, and the King James Version says that John was standing on the seashore. Now, the ESV doesn't mention anyone standing on the seashore. I think they just don't even go there. But there is agreement about what John saw. So I'm going to pick it up a little ways into verse 1. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast, 
and they worship the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. There's that time period again. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. This is the Antichrist. The beast is the Antichrist. So he's got, we've got heads and diadems and horns. And this is, sounds similar to the dragon, right? But it's, it is different. The dragon has seven heads that wear the diadems. The beast has ten horns, and the horns wear the diadems. Now, a diadem is a type of headband crown that's worn by kings or rulers. Now, again, to a student of the Old Testament, this should sound familiar. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel has a vision of the four beasts from the sea. Daniel sees um, a lion, a bear, a leopard, and a dreadful beast with ten horns, and a little horn that then appears. Daniel's told that the four beasts represent four kings who will arise on the earth. In the dreadful beast, his ten horns are ten kings which arise from the fourth kingdom. The little horn is still another king that subdues three of the ten kings. So starting in Daniel 7.25, it says of the little horn, that the little horn, sorry, will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. And they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit in judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. So the little horn of Daniel's vision sounds a lot like Revelation's beast from the sea. And the beast, so Revelation's beast from the sea is uh, described a lot like a composite of the Daniel, of the beast and Daniel that are also from the sea. When it mentions beast from the sea, very often in um, the Bible, the sea represents the Gentile nations, and Israel is often referred to as the land. So, beasts from the sea, um, this suggests they're Gentiles. I find it interesting that Daniel sees the beasts in this order, right? Lion, bear, leopard, and then terrible beast. Whereas John, so Daniel's looking forward into the future from his vantage point. But John is basically taken outside of time, and he's looking back on it. I mean, he sees it all at once, but he describes them in reverse order. Let's continue on in Revelation 13. Now look at verses 7 and 10, 7 through 10. It was also given to him, this is the beast, the Antichrist, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell in the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. There are two key phrases I want to highlight here for us. 
And then I want us to keep them in mind as we hear the rest of, as we read the rest of Revelation and, and on. So the first one is all who dwell on the earth. This group of people is mentioned at least 12 times in Revelation. And here they are contrasted with those whose name is written in the book of life of the Lamb. So those who dwell on the earth are unbelievers. It's the lost who worship the beast. Now I don't have enough time to take you to all the other mentions of those who dwell on the earth. But here are some key things about them. They're completely unrepentant. They reject the truth from God that they receive from the two witnesses. And then, in fact, they rejoice and give presents when the witnesses are killed. And when they experience judgment, they aren't contrite. They're defiant. And they blaspheme God. They are drunk on Babylon's wine of immorality. The phrase, those who dwell on the earth, describes more than simply a people in their geographical location. It connotes a persistent, hardened state of the heart. So in verses 9 and 10, John says, listen up, things are going to get bad, very bad. But the saint patiently endures and keeps faith in Jesus. This is the second phrase, perseverance and faith of the saints. Now this is repeated again, uh, chapter 14, verse 12. Again, in the context of remaining steadfast in the midst of extreme difficulty. Now, these two phrases beg the question, where do you dwell? The way you handle suffering or difficulty can reveal that. Now, I'm not sure anyone aside from Jesus can do it perfectly 100% of the time. And I, I do have a couple examples from my own life. The one times I've been persecuted really just for being a Christian are not all that interesting. So I'm going to share some that are about general suffering. So one time I sought complete control over a difficult and terrifying, it was terrifying at the time, situation. So I did this by researching and compiling data and making charts and uh, making contingency plans and all the while thinking that somehow with enough knowledge I would be able to produce the outcome that I wanted. So, in essence, I was dwelling in earthly self-sufficiency. And things were pretty much a disaster. I mean, it was okay, but nothing turned out the way I planned. Now, there's another time where I surrendered my fears to God. And I knew that in the midst of what felt like an avalanche disassembling my life, that I was in his grip and nothing would change that. I was dwelling with him, and that's a much better place to be. About a month ago, I received from Open Doors their publication. um, It's called World Watchlist, and it was for 2018. And in it, they cite that 215 million Christians experienced high to extreme persecution in the 2018 reporting period. 215 million. That equates to 1 in 12 Christians worldwide. In the time of the beast or Antichrist, I think it's safe to estimate that 12 of 12 believers on the earth will face high to extreme persecution. Now, there is encouragement. In 1 Peter 5, Peter offers this exhortation. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ with himself, will himself, excuse me, Perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Patient endurance, steadfast faith. These are the characteristics of the saint. 
Timothy Keller, and if, um, he's one of my favorite authors, in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, writes of suffering. The Bible calls trials and troubles walking through the fire or a fiery ordeal, but it also likens suffering to a fiery furnace. The biblical understanding of a furnace is more like what we would call a forge. Anything with that degree of heat is, of course, a very dangerous and powerful thing. However, if used properly, it doesn't destroy. Things put into the furnace properly can be shaped, refined, purified, even beautified. And this is a remarkable view of suffering, that if faced and endured with faith, it can, in the end, only make us better, stronger, and more filled with greatness and joy. And here's the part I love. Suffering, then, actually can use evil against itself. It can thwart the destructive purposes of evil and bring light and life out of darkness and death. Now, we all know that Christians love well, right? We're known for our love, Christians known for their love, or we will know we were Christians by our love, as the song goes. But Christians also suffer well. So where do you dwell? How you respond to suffering can tell you. Now let's continue on in chapter 13. There's another beast introduced. And listen for what is said of those who dwell on the earth. This beast is from the earth or the land, and which might mean he's Jewish, the land. He looks like a lamb, but on the inside, he's a dragon. I think what's happening here is Satan is setting up an unholy trinity. Now, there's different ways you can argue, like who plays what part. But the way I see it, Satan's setting himself up as God. He's setting the Antichrist, who has the mortal wound that was healed, as a model of Jesus. And then the um, beast from the earth, who's called the false prophet, as the spirit. So here are some things we can find out about the false prophet. And listen for those who dwell on the earth. The false prophet makes all the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. He performs signs, and with those signs, he deceives those who dwell on the earth. He tells those who dwell on the earth to create some kind of image of the Antichrist. And then he's given the ability to give breath to this image, giving it the appearance of life, and many who do not worship it are killed. The false prophet orchestrates the giving of the mark of the first beast, without which no one can buy or sell. And here we have the infamous number 666, and I take this rather simplistically. Six is the number of a man, right? Man was created on the sixth day. The beast's three sixes signify he's completely fully man. Now, for chapter 14. See, we can do this. (laughs) Again, just think of it as we're putting layers of acetate. We're assembling our picture. So at this point, John sees the Lamb standing on Mount Zion and the 144,000 men. Now, these are the 12,000 men from each tribe of Israel. And we were introduced to them in chapter 7 between the 6th and 7th seals. John hears a song emanating from heaven, and only the 144,000 can learn to sing it. John mentions that the 144,000 have kept themselves chaste. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. They are first fruits of to God, sorry, first fruits to God and the lamb. And first fruits, this means that the rest of the harvest is imminent. 
Now, next John sees three angels, one right after the other. The first angel has a gospel for those who dwell on the earth. This angel says loudly in verse 7, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and springs of waters. There's a second angel, and this angel pronounces judgment on Babylon. And Babylon's discussed a lot more in chapters 17 and 18. The third angel pronounces the ultimate end for worshipers of the beast. In verse 9, he says, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. John then writes, here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Believers on earth won't have it easy, but they will remain faithful. John then hears a voice from heaven, and this voice says, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Now John sees, so we had the first fruits, now John sees the rest of the harvest. So there's two harvesters who come. First is Jesus. He's on a white cloud. This is the same language that's used in Daniel. He reaps the earth with a sharp sickle. And this makes me think of Jesus' parable about the wheat and tares in Matthew 13. The wheat, the good seed, he says these are the sons of the kingdom. The tares are sons of the evil one. And what harvesters do with tares is they burn them. So these the sons of the evil one are destined for fire. Next, John sees an angel emerge from the temple in heaven with a sharp sickle. Now an angel comes from the altar and tells the angel with the sickle, put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because her grapes are ripe. Now the souls under the altar that are mentioned at the fifth seal in chapter 6, they say, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Verse 19. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. The grape harvest, this is reflected in Old Testament passages. Now, we're not going to go there. I know we, I'm sure today feels like you're taking a drink out of a fire hose. But I am going to give you just a little overview about the grape harvest. Uh, Isaiah 62 and 63, they offer this picture of a watchful, expectant Jerusalem, and, and the Messiah is approaching. And the Messiah is described as having his, his garments like the one who treads the winepress. And the people or nations have been judged and trampled in his wrath. Another place, Joel 3, there's a future judgment of the nations in the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And it is described uh, that, or it says that multitudes of the wicked are tread in a winepress there. So some things to keep in mind. 
about the wine press. So I see these reapings a little differently than, than Josh does. And thankfully, you can check out his view in part six of his guide to Revelation. It's available at the back of the auditorium. And it's also available on the church website. So let's pick up our narrative in chapter 15. John sees another sign in heaven. Seven angels who have seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. He calls this sign great and marvelous. Those who have been victorious over the beast, he sees them standing on a sea of glass, and they're holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Moses is described as the bondservant of God. They sing, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. And I love this picture of God as our Redeemer. Um, He's the one who redeemed the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt. And by his son, he's the one who redeemed us from our slavery to sin. And one day, every nation, people, and tongue will come and worship before him. Now the bowls of wrath are coming. Those who dwell on the earth are defiant. They reject God's offer of grace and mercy all the way to the end. As existence in this world grows more and more difficult for believers, may we patiently endure our suffering, stay steadfast in our faith, and experience the joy of the Lord as our strength. I'm going to pray for us. Father, uh, once by our very nature, we were children of wrath. But you changed that. You have washed us clean by the blood of the Lamb, the blood of your Son. You have lifted us up, Father, You've redeemed us. You rescued us. Thank you, Lord, for creating a way to restore us. And thank you, Jesus, for giving your life for ours. And I will just say I look forward to the day that we stand with all the myriads of believers who worship and praise you. Amen.